Section 6 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. French History, 1273-1328, Part 2. The death of Boniface meant much more than the disappearance from the scene of a wicked but ill-used old man. It meant the degradation of the papacy before the growing power of the French crown. His successor, Benedict XI, 1303-1304, was a man of feeble character who tried to soothe Philip and to defend the memory of the dead pope at one and the same time, an impossible attempt which was hindered by his death in the following year, not without grave suspicions of poison. Eleven months of intrigues and indecision followed, ended by a great triumph for France, in the election to the papal throne of Bertrand de Gaulle, Archbishop of Bordeaux, who took the name of Clement V, 1305-1313. Whether or no it is true that Philip interviewed the future pope before his election and dictated definite terms upon which he would agree to support him, there is no doubt as to the submissiveness of this new head of the church. The excommunication laid upon all who had assisted in the outrages against Boniface was removed, and the king's share in the whole matter was publicly declared to be free from all blame and to have merely shown a praiseworthy zeal. Even such humiliations as these were not sufficient. Clement V was not allowed to take up his quarters in Rome. When the inheritance of Alfonso of Poitiers fell into the hands of the French king, a portion of it, the Saint, was adjudged to be attached to the papal see. In Avignon, adjacent to this district, the popes now took up their residence, a town situated actually in the county of Provence, until it was given to the papacy in 1348, but to all intents and purposes in the kingdom of France. With the papal court at Avignon, it was no wonder that Europe came to despise the Pope as a minion of the French king, and this Babylonish captivity, as it was called, which lasted until 1376, left on the papacy a stain which centuries could never efface. Following close on the papal quarrel, and helped on, no doubt, by the complete control which the king felt he could exercise over the church, came a very dark episode in the reign— a record of suffering and of cruelty which stands out even in an age when human life was not valued very highly and when the infliction of bodily pain was scarcely considered a sin. During the Crusades there had sprung up various military orders of warriors pledged to live apart, never to marry, and to spend their lives in the Holy War. Of these, the Order of the Temple was the most famous. The long white robe of the knights with its red cross had figured on every battlefield of the East, and every country of Christendom had branches of the same institution. Paris was the center of the order. In the busiest part of the old city north of the river, the Rue du Temple runs through what was once the quarter, owning the jurisdiction of this body, and where the temple itself stood. But every institution is liable to abuses, and pride and wealth had long been reckoned the darling sins of the Templars. There is no doubt that the order had become enormously wealthy, 
their treasure was rumoured to have reached unheard-of proportions and the magnificence of the temple rivalled that of the royal palace the crusades were now over and whilst the knights of st john had established themselves in the island of rhodes and the teutonic knights had found occupation for their arms in prussia the templars still stood idle a tempting prey to the greed of the french king partly he wanted their money partly he envied their power partly he feared lest the pope should find in them a champion possibly a little genuine belief in their depravity lay at the root of his conduct in any case for one reason or another philip determined on their downfall and when two discontented members of the order whispered accusations against their fellows in the royal ear they received a ready hearing in thirteen o seven the grand master jacques de molay and all the knights in france were arrested on the charge of denying our lord of worshipping an idol and of being stained with crime and depravity unspeakable the pope was forced to summon a commission to examine into the case and there followed a mockery of a trial the wretched victims were questioned under torture and with a few noble exceptions were driven to admit the truth of every sort of accusation however impossible almost without exception they retracted their admissions as soon as they were released from the agony of torture whatever foundation there may have been for some of the charges against them no weight whatever can be attached to such confessions one templar asserted that all he had said under torture was false but that he knew he should avow the same if dragged as one of his fellows had been to the stake i should never be able to resist the terror of the fire i should confess that i had killed god if they wished it all was a foregone conclusion most of the knights were burnt some few who consented to abide by their confessions were set free to live as best they could the grand master and the preceptor of the order were the last to perish after seven years of imprisonment tortured at first into avowals they now stood firm we are not guilty of those things of which we are accused but we are guilty of having basely betrayed the order to save our lives the order is pure and holy the accusations are absurd the confessions false so they declared and were burnt to death steadfast to this declaration thus perished this great order most of its wealth fell into the hands of the king and his courtiers only a part of it came into the possession of the knights of st john to whom it had been formally made over in other countries suppression took place at the same time and many templars were captured but it was in france alone that such horrible cruelty was exercised during the trials the story runs that jacques de molay from the stake summoned king and pope to meet him before the tribunal of god within that year a month later clement died after dreaming of the destruction of his papal palace in flames thirteen thirteen in seven months philip without visible disease sank into the grave silently as he had lived thirteen fourteen we must turn to the home government of philip the fourth to understand the real importance of his reign and its position in the history of france he does not stand alone his work was a continuation of that of philip augustus and louis the ninth 
but it was perhaps at this time that feudalism as a basis for government received its severest check and that the king was able to assert most successfully his claim to be direct lord of all his subjects not only of his tenants-in-chief and to pose as the source and guardian of the law in order to do this the administrative machinery was strengthened and extended france had already been divided into bailliages and sénéchaussées districts administered by royal officials bailiffs in the north and seneschals in the south philip made no great change in this institution but further extended the functions of these officers mostly members or agents of the royal council and gained from them a knowledge of local affairs throughout the kingdom as representatives of royalty they had power over justice finance and provincial administration of all sorts and were able to act therefore as a very real check on the country nobility to help him in central government the king had his cour du roi and in this various important changes took place originally it was merely a court such as any great lord might have to manage the affairs of his own demesne under philip augustus in cases where nobles might be brought before it to be tried since they had to be tried by their equals great vassals were added and it was transformed into a court of peers under louis the ninth trained lawyers were introduced and it became a more efficient part of the government helping the king in every part of the administration as also in justice and finance it was the aim of philip the fourth to make this court still more efficient and still more of a check on the nobles every feudal baron had of course his own demesne court and one of the great differences between french and english feudalism had been that in france all the great nobles had rights of high justice could hear appeals from the courts of their subtenants and could make final decisions appeal to the king only being made in cases where the suzerain refused to do justice not when complaint was made against the justice which he had done philip the fourth however insisted on appeals being brought from the local courts of the nobles to his own court and there were now certain cases known as carroyaux which had to come in the first instance before the royal hearing treason infringements of safe conduct or of privileges granted by the king tampering with the coinage and such like besides this great increase of business the legal element in the cour du roi was very much increased and business was more and more taken from the hands of nobles and put into those of professional lawyers all this work could scarcely be performed by one court accordingly in thirteen o two three divisions were established each with its own distinct functions and separate officials the conseil du roi rather like our privy council was chiefly to help the king in the actual administration of the country but it still retained the right of hearing judicial appeals in the very last resort the chambre du comte had control of all financial business while the judicial work was handed over to the parlement of paris the great french law court which did much the same work as our courts of king's bench and common pleas later the privilege was added of registering all royal edicts a duty at first merely formal but which was one day to lead to claims of discussing this legislation and of objecting to it and even of vetoing it 
At present, however, the Parlement was purely a judicial court. Philip IV fixed this Parlement of Paris, divided it into three sections, and made it meet regularly twice a year. Very shortly after, it was changed into a permanent body, and its members were appointed for life. Besides strengthening the central and local machinery of administration, Philip has also made himself famous by summoning what has been called the First States-General. That meeting in 1302, of which we have already spoken as sending a message to Boniface VIII. National assemblies of some sort had been held in past times under the Carolingians. Very probably all three orders had been summoned before under these early monarchs, but no meeting has been fully described by the chroniclers before this one of 1302, which was more remarkable, both on account of its numbers and the importance of its business, than any which had preceded it. All tenants-in-chief of the crown, lay and ecclesiastical, were summoned, representatives of lower clergy also, and burgesses from all the principal towns. Possibly the example of the English Parliament of 1295 had some influence upon the composition of this assembly. It was, however, simply for the royal convenience, and to give the king support. There was no general discussion. The meeting only lasted a day. The members were told by Pierre Flotte what was expected of them, and then each estate drew up separately, according to order, their messages of defiance to the Pope. There were other states-general later in the reign, when Philip wanted support in the affair of the Templars, and for war with Flanders, but the same character was always visible. The king summoned his people not to consult them nor to learn their wishes, but to strengthen himself by a general support, to influence the assembly by his presence, and to bind the whole nation to his cause. It will be seen from this account how very closely the work of Philip IV resembled that which Edward I was doing almost at the same time in England. Both carried on the reforms of their predecessors instead of following new lines of their own. Both diminished the power of the nobles by undermining feudal independence and by strengthening the central administration. Both turned to the people for help in their undertaking. Yet, through all this resemblance, there was one great underlying difference which was to lead to widely divergent results. In France, everything came from the crown, and everything was done for the crown. It was the crown alone which was to gather to itself all the power and also all the responsibility. In England, free local government had been a real thing from the earliest times, and Edward made use of these free local institutions to help on his work. His parliament was a collection of local representatives, and his policy was national, not only selfish. Philip managed the localities by royal officials, by ruling the country by royal courts, and subjected the nobles to royal justice. Even when apparently he turned to the nation, it was merely as royal supporters to be summoned when he needed help, and simply for the purpose of giving it. Thus work so similar in appearance was to lead in England to the growth of popular government, in France to the development of the despotism of the crown. A word must be said before leaving Philip IV on one very bad side of his government, namely his financial administration. Always in want of money, he resorted to very mistaken ways of raising it. 
he levied heavy taxes on sales of goods, thus hampering trade and commerce. He met present distress by adding to future difficulties through his system of farming out the taxes, that is, in order to gain a sum of money at the moment, he sold to all sorts of people the right of levying imposts, a plan which resulted in much oppression and misery for the taxpayer. Above all, so constant was his debasement of the currency that he earned for himself the name of the false coiner. Unfortunately for France, the methods thus adopted were continued only too faithfully by succeeding monarchs. The immediate successors of Philip the Fair need only be shortly mentioned. His son, Louis X, 1314 to 1316, died without a male heir, and his daughter Joan was passed over in favor of his brother, Philip V, 1316 to 1322. It was the fear at this time of being ruled by a woman which led to the invention of a rule to prevent female succession to the throne of France. The French lawyers hunted up an old law of the Salian Franks, forbidding the inheritance of women in the Salic land. This was applied to the crown to suit the convenience of the moment, and dignified by the name of the Salic law, became regarded as an ancient rule of succession to the French monarchy. When Philip V died, he again left only daughters, and since the third brother, Charles IV, succeeded without difficulty, 1322 to 1328, the idea of the exclusion of women was still further strengthened. When Charles IV died and the direct Capet line came to an end, a far more complicated question arose, since there was a possible heir whose claims had come to him through a woman, namely Edward III of England. The French, however, did not desire the rule of any foreign king, and the nearest heir on the male side, Philip of Valois, a cousin of the last three monarchs, was crowned as Philip the Sixth. End of section six.